it, it's just that idea that even that mindset, what you're saying, Sandra, is changing a bit, at least anecdotally from what I can see, that you said the public is changing a bit, that it is becoming much more, uh, word is probably not the right way, but nationalized on a local level. It used to be all politics are local, but now it seems like a lot of national politics are being drawn in yes. to the local world. And that is a whole new variable to consider when you're, I would assume, a local manager to try to it's, balance that. It's just another thing to try to juggle. I can only imagine how difficult that is. It is probably, if I, if you ask me the top five most difficult things about being a township manager, that I would say is number one right now, right. just because there used to be some trust with local government that remained. But I think a big issue for government in general is trust from the public. And listen, I understand why. There's plenty of examples where the government has failed the public and that's why they feel that way. But I had never experienced before, like I say something in a public meeting and someone says, no, that's not true. And then I show them the facts and they say, you're lying or that's not true. That That's a new experience for me. And I think it's a, a newer experience in most communities that has come from, I don't know, I think maybe everyone forgot their manners during COVID. We were all at home or whatever it is. I can't assign the blame, but it is one of those things that we as managers just have to go back to our professional ethics. As I said, that example I gave you before, we just have to remember we're public servants. And my goal certainly always is to make sure that I amplify the trust in government, not reduce it. My guests today are Sandra Zadell, manager of Upper Gwinnett Township in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and Dr. Adam Kuzinski, chair of the MPA program at Villanova University. This is the second episode in a series about relationships that lead to partnerships between academia, local governments, and the communities they serve. Sandra is someone who has come up in my conversations with other podcast guests as someone I should reach out to. I am so glad I did. She brings fresh energy and appreciation for her field of work. Adam was recommended to me as well. And like Sandra, he approaches his field of study with a sense of openness and possibility. In addition to her township role, Sandra is an instructor in the MBA program at Villanova. Adam, in his journey to researcher and professor, somehow found the time to run for elected office at local level. Don't ask me how they found the time. In this episode, we workshop a few ideas. We talk about what holds us back and what propels us forward. Although we are just getting to know one another, a close listen uncovers pearls of wisdom and openings for further conversations. And so, off we go. So, what took you from Massachusetts? You graduated, you came back to Pennsylvania. Did you have in mind local government, or is that something that happened? That happens. It happened to me. And so I'm so glad it did. I started when I graduated from UMass, I moved back home and became a social worker in Bucks County, working with kids on juvenile probation. And I loved it. And while I was in that career field, I quickly was promoted to manager at 23, which I still laugh that I, I really am sure I didn't know much about what I was doing. But my boss at that time, Lou Casa, was a student in the Villanova MPA program. And when I started debating, do I want my MSW or I didn't even know what an MPA was, he really strongly suggested that I check out the program. And even all through my master's degree in my MPA program, I still focused on nonprofit management because that's what I thought I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. 
until I discovered the greatness that is local government. And I've been hooked ever since I got my first job in local government at Doylestown Township, which is 16 years ago now. Yeah, the local government scene really blends all of that, doesn't it? It has a sense of really connecting with community and if you approach it that way. You are now at Upper Gwinnett Township in Montgomery County, which is a pretty big township. We have about 17,000 residents, a little over eight square miles. The bigness that we have is we host the largest employer in Montgomery County, which is Merck. And so we have a special community in that it's very much a bedroom community, except we have a large user, industrial manufacturing user, right in the center of our town. So it affects us in that we get 12,000 visitors per day as far as traffic and people coming and going from Merck. So it makes us feel a little bigger. Our operations are a little bigger, I'd say, because of that. When did you start teaching at Villanova? It just started that last year. I had my first class and I'm all ready to go again this summer with my second class. And that was probably the most fun thing I've done in the local government realm since I started because it reminded me what I love about local government and it got me to really hone and focus in on what I want the next generation of our leaders to know. My class specifically was about labor relations and it was just so much fun. That's kind of a a dramatic part of what we do in local government. It's no one's favorite thing to negotiate union contracts. And so it was fun to get to focus on it on if all in the world was perfect this is how it should go. And then also be able to give the students some real world examples of how it really does go. That's great. That's great. Adam, thank you so much for coming on today. I really enjoyed our earlier conversation leading up to this. I've thought a lot about it and I've brought up some of the things you and I talked about in the conversation that I recorded this week, a couple of days ago. So it's been very valuable. And I want to go back over your background because you have enough education here to be really dangerous, I think. So I, I really, I'm not sure the exact order, but I, but I, let me see. It would have been Penn State. You had you got your BA at Penn State. And what was your study? Yeah, yeah I know just enough, like you said, to be dangerous. A lot of, <laughs> but I defer to a lot of experts. I've been lucky in my career to learn from a lot of folks that were experts in their field. And I really benefited from that. So yeah, I started at Penn State. Before even that, though, I really enjoyed our talk, too. I always appreciate anybody that shows an interest because I love talking about this stuff. So I appreciate both of you and, and everybody that listens to this and, and anybody that even thinks about this stuff. I very much appreciate. But yeah, so I started at Penn State with a BA in journalism and a minor in political science. So I started in the journalism field. So from there, I worked in journalism. The two things I said I never wanted to do was work in financial journalism and work in New York City. And within a year, I was working in financial journalism. Within a couple of years after that, I was in New York City. So it was really something where I had to do a quick readjust. I was able to go to get my master's degree from Mom University and got a communications master's degree. I thought I was going to do that next logical step for most journalists, which is then jump into Navy communications or public relations. But I was able to get a educational opportunity with the White House, the executive office of the president. I was able to go down there and I really got to experience what it was like to really be doing something. I always admitted my public service ability to inform others about what things are happening, keep people informed. And that was my first taste of really understanding in a formal sense, actually doing stuff. I was always involved in community and things like that, never formally. 
So I came back and I got involved in local government. I was elected to our council. And from there, I learned about this whole idea of city management. So I looked for a bunch of different places, taking back to Villanova. So I was able to get my degree there. And while I was there, I had a great opportunity to realize I really do enjoy dealing with the micro problems, say, dealing with specifics. But I also enjoyed learning about the macro problems, the bigger problems. So from there, I went on to get my PhD at Rutgers Spa in Newark. And then I wound up getting a JD from Mitchell Hamlin University. So I have a law degree. So it's kind of that most public servants, you'll see them, our trajectories are never like a line. It's always kind of like this. I think it makes it feel so special. I'm going to ask you an etiquette question. I'm calling you Adam, but in the introduction to this episode, I would like to know whether you like to be referred to as Dr. Kuczynski or Professor Kuczynski. And I'm asking you this right up front because this is one of the things about access between the two sectors. Sometimes we don't know how to approach an academic. And I'd like to just know your thoughts about this and if Adam's okay to use in our exchange today. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate that question because I dealt with that too when I was in local government. I'm sure Sandra knows this as well. If they're the council person, do you call them council persons? When do you call a council person, so on, so all those different things. And when you call your officers by their names, right? Things like that, your CFO, your mayor, things like that. Personally, I'm A-OK with Adam all the time. Introduction purposes, usually just to make sure there's no confusion. I'll usually introduce myself as Dr. Adam Pazinski. And we go from there. After that first introduction, I'm A-OK with Adam. And, and we can go on from that. But I appreciate that question. You're right. It really is. Or it could be a bit of a, an off-putting barrier if you don't even know how to start the conversation with someone. How can you then have a conversation with someone? So I could appreciate that very much. Yeah, I think that it is one of the overriding themes that I've picked up on as I've been talking to different folks that are going to participate in this series. And it's just that it can feel sometimes inaccessible to get over the divide between the sectors. And I was surprised from the academic perspective that they don't always have the culture surrounding them that says, go do this community engagement, go get more involved. It's a desirable, but maybe not always the first thing or even a metric. And I don't know how Villanova is in this regard or how that feels. I know also was explained to me that it can depend on what rank you are going, like how long you've been a professor in terms of how you have to focus your energy. I'm not a manager and I'm not an academic. So for both of you to share what your perspective is for that partnership or that relationship, what is it that holds you back and what is it that, that you're looking for from the other? And Sandra, it feels to me as if within the local government that that the role of academics is more towards the professional growth. In other words, there's almost, and you immediately go back to a learning environment. You've got a professor in the room and it's almost like we're wired to, to respond, like teach or tell us. I am getting the feeling that managers might benefit from understanding exactly what academics can bring to the table, that it's something more than what we have maybe been familiar with in the past, which is the learning environment. Does that ring true at all to you? Can you say so, from your perspective? Yeah. From my perspective, I think I have a slightly different perspective 
from that, but I think it's based in the, I don't know, the uniqueness of the Villanova MPA program. So I am a Villanova MPA graduate and it's not just Villanova. I actually have another college that I have a good relationship, actually two more, if I think about it in, in different communities where I've worked relationships we've had maybe with the university inside of our community um, and how we've worked together to create partnerships. And I think that for me and my personal experience, it's been very easy. My mentor always says everything in management is relationships, and I totally agree with her on that. I had a, a relationship with the Villanova MPA program because I was a graduate, and then I was asked to serve on the Villanova MPA Diversity Committee. Being on that committee enabled me to work with other professors at Villanova and students and stay connected on a relational way so that when I did need help from academia, it was very easy to reach out. So after the George Floyd incident, my board is very progressive and was looking to provide some sort of community conversation to our community. And I thought immediately of the chairperson of the diversity committee that I was serving with, Dr. Gadsden. And she was great. We created a program for our community. We worked together. It was a wonderful experience. So I think that was based, again, in that relationship that I already had with Villanova University. I can think of a couple other examples. When I worked in Doylestown Township, I did a grant with our Environmental Advisory Council for a rain garden installation. And we had Delaware Valley University, which is very horticultural and agricultural in focus in our community. And we worked with their horticulture department to install the rain garden as a demonstration rain garden on the community's campus. But my boss at that time, who was the manager, just had a wonderful relationship with the university. So I think these cool creative ideas of things that can come out of working with universities and managers come originally from that relationship. So I would say if you are a township manager, universities have endless resources available to us. And if you have one near you or some sort of relationship, just try to expand on that relationship, build on it, and think of creative ways that you can work together. Because in both of those cases, it was very easy. It was a very easy and wonderful experience for the community and for me. Not sure what the experience was for the university, but helpful <laughs> to us. Yeah. Tell us about uh, the experience from the other side, Adam. Yeah, that's a great set of examples there. And I think that really speaks to what can be accomplished. And what I've noticed is, I guess I can speak to possibly some of the barriers that might be there. And a lot of times I think it's just a disconnect of what is needed sometimes. I think that academics sometimes think on that macro level, right? Like how to solve problem, whereas local managers are at the level of experiencing set. And I think that disconnect isn't really a disconnect at all. It's just maybe a, a, a redefining of the problem. And I think Sandra's advice to reach out to universities is phenomenal. They could really, a lot of the academics that I know, and I can only speak to the folks I know and myself, obviously, it's a very small sample in the whole grand scheme of things, but are always willing to help. They're always willing to try to get involved. There might not be a solution. There might not be what you hope is there, but you can build that network out further. Somebody knows somebody knows somebody and hopefully at the end of the day, all of our goals really align in public service arena, whether you're in the academic world or in the actual public service practical world, it's still the same goal to, to serve the public. And I think to, to your point earlier on that it's not necessarily let, let's not do something. It's just how do we do something? And 
And I think things like this are really important. I think things like cross-sharing our resources are really important and understanding each other's roles, right? So as you said earlier, Nancy, the, the, the idea that folks in the academic world are at different points in their career where certain things they have to focus on, just like city managers are at different points and a city's involvement. It might not be the same in two cities, it might be the same problem, but not the same issue and that kind of thing. And I think as long as we're all aware of those subtle differences, those nuances, once you can align the academic side, and again, speaking for myself and those that I know, I think we are really hoping to be able to provide service to the local communities in any ways that we can. Adam, you reminded me of what I, another point I wanted to bring up and that my relationship with Villanova grew when I decided to give back to Villanova by serving on that diversity committee. So that would be managers and professors, I would say, that are interested in this type of work. We're all public servants and looking at service is an important part of our values. I think that if you are looking to build a relationship with a university or a department, a great way to do that is to ask them as a manager, how can I help you? Is there some board that I can serve on? And that just universally makes it a more open relationship because you become part of the university system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. versus an insider. Great point. And then conversely too, any academics out there, reach out to the local managers, big and small, and just say, hey, here I am. These are my expertise. And be open and be humble and understand that you might not be the person they need because your expertise might not fall there. But be that bridge that connect them with someone that might be able to be that expert that they need. But I think if we walk into that, just as Andrew's saying, you walk into that let's work together mindset and offer yourself in service. And conversely, we do it the same way, offering ourselves in service that way. It helps build those. It makes the bridge very wide as opposed to very narrow, right? Bridge becomes, okay, maybe I could reach out to Adam about X, Y, and Z problem. And then I could point them to somebody else. And if I had a little issue going on, I could reach out to Sandra and say, Sandra, here's an A, B, and C problem. It might, you might not have anything to do with A, B, or C, somebody that does. And you connect us around. And that dot connecting is really the challenging part of it. And I think we're speaking towards that today. Yeah. Going back to this idea of, of participating or contributing on a panel or a board or anything. In other words, and this goes to a point you and I talked about, Adam, even prior to that really urgent issue project coming up, if there's something else that connects you that you begin the conversations and that relationship starts to percolate. It's more likely that when the problem comes, I'm coming to you with a sense of trust. Like I'm gonna tell you, Adam, what I think is going on here and I know you're not going to go talking about it, but I need to just tell you this. And that's a lot easier to do when you've had an opportunity to build that relationship prior to the time that happens. Of course, yes, it, it's that human nature, right? That you, if you're dealing with something that's it's almost the bigger it is, the harder it is to talk about the folks you've never talked about it before. Because, like you said, the vulnerability there, the fear there, especially if the town manager, whoever, is not on the job for so long, there might be an inverse kind of fear there. Um, so, you had definitely that building of a relationship beforehand. As two, yeah, I mean, it's really so two things. One, if it really is a strong relationship and there really is a lot of give and back and give and take, 
you might be able to avoid that problem before it happens because you might have another set of eyes helping you see that on the horizon, you might be able to collaborate before it even happens. And then second, if it does happen, you do have those various avenues to try to seek assistance. And again, the end goal in a perfect world, as Sandra said, is to serve the public. You know, right now in my role, I do it differently than Sandra does in her professional role. She does it when she teaches, but when she's not teaching, I do it different than other professionals and other professionals and nonprofits do it differently. But at the end of the day, our goal, regardless of how many pieces of string we're tying together to make that cord, is hopefully to serve the public. And if we can start combining our cords together, then it becomes really strong. And, and I think that's what I hope for. I know a lot of my colleagues hope for it, it's just in the field in general. And so, yeah, I, I think it's that human relationship. And you got to, Sandra has to see me as Adam. I have to see her as Sandra. I can't, she can't look at me as an academic in that role. And I can't look at her as a town manager in that role. We have to get past that to work to that commonality, which is really serving the public. Yeah. Here's a question I'd like to ask both of you, but I'll start with Adam. If I could see inside your mind just for a moment, if you would let me see inside, what is it that you are interested in about local government that I may not know about? In other words, I wouldn't know to reach out to you on this particular thing because it's, it just would never have occurred to me maybe. Is there something that really interests you that, about local government? Oh, I would love to hear Sandra's response to this because I think removing all, making it a neutral kind of concept, right? The idea that I love the most is the fact that it's so pliable, so flexible to address problems and so in touch with the, the citizenry. That itself is something that's always in my brain. It's almost like you can try to fix almost any problem that comes about. It's the first line. The second part of that, though, that makes it the most interesting thing to me is the fact that so many folks on the local level don't know that. The average person doesn't know that. The person that's dealing with the problems might not know that. You would think it would not be hard to share that information. I just find that it's challenging and interesting at the same time. I just love the fact that it's so flexible, so pliable, but also just amazing that that flexibility is well known. In my experience. This, is, this goes back to your communication work and your journalism and being able to help people make local government more accessible or understood. And I think local governments are doing a tremendous job of helping to make it easier to access. Yeah, we try to do that every day. That's a big part of our mission. A couple of things Adam spoke of really resonated with me. So that community engagement piece is something we're always working on. We at my township, we try everything we can to get people engaged. But what really does get people engaged is generally when they have a big problem that we've solved for them or when they have a big problem that they think we haven't solved for them. And then we get a high level of engagement. So I always joke with my staff, like if there's like a tropical storm coming, yay, we're going to get more likes. It'll be bad because there's going to be a tropical storm, but people will pay attention to us for this short period of time because they need our services. So there's some situations like that. But it is absolutely hands down my favorite thing about local government that we are really, truly the government for the people. I believe so much in um, the foundations of American government. I've always been like a gov geek, and it's probably based in the fact that I was born in a country where the government operates very differently in Jordan in the Middle East. 
So I just really embrace the values of democracy. And I love watching, like I get to watch democracy happen twice a month in my public meeting room when the public comes to talk to us about whatever they would like to talk to us about and see that they really always get an answer. And that I think it, it's the pride in what I do. And you can tell how excited I am about it when I talk about it. Because there are countries all over the world and communities all over the world where you cannot just go to your local government officials and say, I need this. And they try to make it happen. And that's very much happening, not just in Upper Gwinnett, but I think all over Southeastern PA. I think we should workshop this one. really. This is a great topic. So if you were a dream team and <laughs> we're bringing these perspectives together to help municipalities Let's say they were just interested in public engagement and framed it in the way you did, Adam. We want to help people understand what we do and how was it you said it, that that their local government is available for them to be engaged with. These are opportunities. I think about young people. I was like this. I didn't understand what local government did. So I'm giving you some moments to think about. So, Sandra, you're going to bring something to this team. And you're going to be like a little traveling team. You're going to do some work on this area of public engagement. What is it that you would bring, Sandra, that you think would be helpful from your experience to the public engagement challenge? I'll give you another minute to think. According to the annual report just issued by the Local Government Institute out in California, like this is one of their number one membership challenge. It's, yes. I can talk about that too. Even the example I gave where I care about the likes we get from a tropical storm. We also usually get about 40 calls from residents the next day where I get to personally talk to all of them and may never have spoken to them. Local government to me is not boring, but to many is incredibly boring. I try to get my husband to listen to my budget presentation sometimes and I'm so excited about it. He's like, Sandra, this is so boring. So I think that what I would bring to the table is I have that sort of humility, I think, about the fact that most residents aren't that interested in what we're doing. And so you have to really make it about them. How can we help you? What are you interested in? We actually recently hired a comms team, like a consultant, because that's the other challenge for local government officials. I do not have a background in, in communications. My background's in political science and public administration. So I can see that as one area that we could lean on a university if they could help us with that piece. What we would bring to the table as local government professionals is just a really strong knowledge of what the residents generally want to know about. I know the hot topic items that residents want to learn about. And luckily in Upper Gwinnett, we've done a couple surveys recently, so that helps. But I don't know what else I bring as far as just a firsthand knowledge of what it seems like people are interested in. I think that in general, the way I can rely on academia is that it's been, gosh, almost 20 years since I got my MPA. There's probably a lot that's changed in management principles and these types of theoretical principles that I do love hearing about because I'm a lifetime learner. I want to know what's the best way. You know, it used to be social media. And in our surveys with our residents, we're finding out they love our newsletter more than anything, our print newsletter which is different and not intuitive if you think about the way people communicate today, but that's still how the old-fashioned way that they want us to communicate with them. We still add all the new bells and whistles, but I don't think I answered your question. But I think if you two were going into some communities that were having difficulty in this area or just feeling like they didn't have the momentum they wanted, or what I hear you say is that you, you would be 
by their side or meeting them with where they're at in terms of how to really do that face-to-face with your citizens and maybe helping them. The, the one thing I would have a hard time getting over is having people like tell me like one after the other that they're unhappy. <laughs> but that isn't my favorite part of my job. That's <laughs> the worst parts. But luckily that's not, I, that, yes, sometimes people are like up upset about one thing, but they're also happy about something else. And that's something I try to, yeah, actually yesterday I had a resident call me and all of my interactions with this resident have been when they're upset. It's never been like a positive reason that they're calling me. And in each case, I've provided them with what I think is really good service. And at the end, actually the resident hung up on me yesterday. And then she sent me a Facebook message after I followed up with her, even though she hung up on me and thanked me for the information I had given her. So I think just moving past the challenges, yes, people are upset generally when they call their local government. You just have to stay in the line and be professional. But I would love to hear what Adam can tell me his collaborative effort would be. Words, my gosh, what are, if nothing speaks to a public servant attitude than that, to have, as Shannon was said, to to deal with that animosity, still keep helping and still keep helping and still keep helping. That, that defines the reason why I got involved with public service defines why I try. I believe public service is a great thing because it's public service like Sandra who do that. I, I remember when I was a council person, I had a person that called pretty much routinely to yell at me. Routinely. We have a part time thing. So they would usually call you a message. And I'd always call them back and I'd get the continuation of the yelling. The, the, the voicemail would start the yelling. I'd call back. I'd yell that more. They were always respectful if they ever went over the line because public servants have a right to be people. I would always say, hey, complain about things that can be complained about. I don't want to hear about, you know, you know what I mean. So they kept it very on board. He's complained about everything and yelled at them about everything. And then finally, I got something like Sandra did there where they said to me, you know what? I've been playing to council people for 30 years and you're the first person to call me back every time. I want to thank you for that. Shocking to me. I was not expecting that, right? But it was a nice little thing. And again, that's why I felt very much a kinship there, Sandra, when you were talking about that. That was <laughs> something that I can really feel. As far as the collaboration and the idea of your little traveling team here, I think in my role right now, I can recognize that folks have a view of government generally as dichotomous. They like it or they don't. You get the neutral folks too, but the neutral folks are the hardest ones to reach. But for the folks that you can reach, whether they like it or they don't like it, I think an academic or anybody that's not a government employee can come out and kind of serve as a bridge, serve as a filter, serve as someone to either soften the blow or amplify the voice. And I think that's important because I think if there's that conversation with constituents or residents or anything like that, sometimes if they have a negative view, they might not want to hear from the government. It might not give the government a fair shake. Just if taxes go up, they have to go up. These are the things that are going on. There, there might be legitimate reasons that can be debated, but they're what they are. And I think a, a third party could help essentially try to, uh, the word's not filter, but like I said before, amplify or maybe uh, explain further and just provide that other avenues for folks to either tamp down expectations or to ramp up you know, positivity if it, if it warrants it. But at the end of the day, you no, know, we're there to support. And, and I think that's one of the main ways to support, be that bridge between the constituent and the government entity or agency. 
And now how that would actually put into place in each world would depend on obviously all those different contextual things that Sandra pointed out before and that you pointed out before Nancy. But I think that would be like a general idea where I think somebody from a from an academic point of view could come from. One of the other areas that did come up in some conversations that I've had so far is this sort of neutrality that there is in in, in your discipline, Adam. And certainly for the municipal manager, there's a, a some expectation of neutrality. And when I think about you going into a community, let's say, for instance, some of the communication or divisiveness is happening like right with the board. And it can be very difficult for the manager to guide that discussion to, to, since they do need to stay neutral, I can see where having somebody who is an outsider, it could be a facilitator or just a professional facilitator, but probably somebody from an academic in the field of public administration would have a better understanding of the context, particularly if they had some relationships established. So like an Adam coming in and being able to listen fully because you, this is, this is, these are issues. You may not know the specifics of this particular municipality because you're a traveling team, but you go in and you have the ears to understand the context of government, local government. That's what I'm thinking of. But that neutrality, hopefully it con confers an element of trust in your presence there and allows the manager to step back a little bit. And of course, if Sandra then was also coming in with you, she could advocate for this is what you, this is what a role of a manager is. And these are some things that would be helpful to bridge this gap. I'm thinking of a situation that could actually be an ethical situation that has to do with communication and politics in the community and that the manager has to say, I'm giving you my best recommendation, let's say on an issue that you want to steer clear of the politics. You just want to give a professional recommendation, but yeah. they don't want to go that way. They want to go another way that feels a little unethical. And then you've got the public coming in with two sides. No, mm -hmm. so I am lucky that I have never been put in a situation like that by my board. I'm very lucky. I've had very professional boards, but I can see my example would be a little different in that. I have had to, in the public meeting, establish myself as neutral from the board when residents will direct their public comment to me that's about something that's more of like an opinion or political. And I'll just gently remind them, hey, just so you know, I'm a staff member. I'm not one of the elected officials and I don't have an opinion because sometimes they want me to share an opinion. And sure. I'll say, I my role here is administrative and the board's role is policy and help to separate that. But that is right there is a place where academia could come in because it's things like a citizen's academy or something along those lines, teaching people who are all those people that are sitting up there on the dais. They seem so unapproachable. They're all the way up there. And it's weird. We're down here and they're up there. And I feel you know, an, an academic could be there to explain the way that things work in local government and yeah. the role of politics versus the role of administration. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's a huge divide sometimes. And I think that's part of that idea of that dichotomous view too. You don't know what makes someone like government, quote unquote, like it or dislike government. And you might find that based on politics and not on policy or administration, 
that's a whole different conversation yeah. for someone like Sandra. And it's growing, it unfortunately. So, that's actually yeah. what I see more and more every day now in local government. It has really changed over the past maybe five or six years is yeah. now what I see from residents is what I hear from them first is like their national political problems. And we might be talking about like a public sewer project or something that that nothing national politics wise would have anything to do with. But they're bringing some anger that has to do with what's happening nationally. So that's an interesting thing that we're all working through in local government right now. I hear from my colleagues. The public has changed. I was even at the hair salon last week and my um, hairstylist was saying like, yes, the public has changed. Just that that little amped up extra emotionality that's happened since COVID and with recent political changes is something that we really do deal with at the local level. Yeah. And it's a very real thing. It affects how things can get done. It's not just something that's just rhetorical. It's a very real thing. And I think that's, again, where academics try to come in and help. Now, again, academics have the same thing. A lot of people have a dichotomous view of sometimes of academia and universities. So yeah, it might be the same type of thing. Not on the same level, but I do experience a lot of the same type of comments from folks. Like when I was in government, I still come in, in academics. And it's it, a lot of it is, again, misunderstandings and misalignments and not quite understanding where things are going. I had an old, an older, what would you say, someone that was involved in the system for a long time. And they told me one time, there's not a Republican way or a Democratic way to pick up the garbage. And then by the I end, I think I might know my, that person because I feel like I've heard that many times in my career. <laughs> it's not even shared. It might be yeah. one of those little wisdom <laughs> that passed around. Mm-hmm. And the individual actually pulled me down when I went back to them later on at the end of my career. I said, yeah, you might want to start rethinking that because people are not accepting of that anymore. They think if the garbage is not getting picked up, it's because of whatever party in charge. It's not necessarily, yeah. oh, the garbage truck broke down or mm-hmm. we, whatever kind of emergency happened and whether it's Republican, they think there's some kind of. Could it be a staffing shortage, right? <laughs> right yeah, yeah, it's yeah. something. So it, it's just that idea that even that mindset, what you're saying, Sandra, is changing a bit, at least anecdotally from what I can see, that you said the public is changing a bit, that it is becoming much more. Uh, where probably not the right way, but nationalized on a local level. We used to all politics are local, but now it seems like a lot of national politics are being drawn in the local world. And that is a whole new variable to consider when you're, I would assume, a local manager. To to try to balance that, it's just another thing to try to juggle. I can only imagine how difficult that is. It is probably, if I, if you ask me the top five most difficult things about being a township manager, that I would say is number one right now, just because there used to be some trust with local government that remained. But I think a big issue for government in general is trust from the public. And listen, I understand why. There's plenty of examples where the government has failed the public and that's why they feel that way. But I had never experienced before, like, I say something in a public meeting and someone says, no, that's not true. And then I show them the facts and they say, you're lying or that's not true. That That's a new experience for me. And I think it's a, a newer experience in most communities that has come from, I don't know, I think maybe everyone forgot their manners during co- like COVID. We were all at home or whatever it is. I can't assign the blame, but it is one of those things that we as managers just have to go back to our professional ethics. As I said, 
that example I gave you before. We just have to remember we're public servants. And my goal certainly always is to make sure that I amplify the trust in government, not reduce it. There's something that that I've been thinking a lot about. It has to do with qualitative data. I think surveys are fine. They help provide the database that you need. But then I think the, the academic community is equipped to know what to do with all of the data. So, so interpret it, to bring it back and provide, provide that. But I think the qualitative data is a little bit more difficult. And I'm just curious whether either of you have thoughts about this. I'm exploring the topic of community safety with a project where people enter stories into a portal that has an ability to, to sort out the themes around community safety. But I think that we're moving towards a different way of doing it, that the traditional survey, and the reason I bring this up is because we've gotten used to on Facebook, for instance, and the social media, just like type it away. This is what we're angry at. And it's like when they face you, Sandra, then they're tempering a little bit. And maybe if they have an opportunity to actually tell a story as opposed to just clicking a box, that the intervention, if you will, is able to address the challenge. And I don't mean that as a statement. It's a question, actually. <laughs> is there a way to address that challenge through either focus groups where there's face-to-face or in-person interviews. I'm just curious, like what the state of, like if you were that traveling team and you went into a divisive community, is a paper survey the way that you would get your data or would you think of doing it some other ways? Question. Yeah, I would say that depends on, well, thank you for my answer for it. depends. No, <laughs> it, it depends on, I think, on what your goals are, right? So in that particular world, I'm not going to answer for Sandra, but I would assume that her goals would be a little different than mine as an academic researcher, right? Mm-hmm. But when I use qualitative research really isn't going to show you like the causation like you think or the generalizability that you think, but it will give you maybe ways to look, it'll dive in deep, it'll give you these deeper look at the situations that might answer or suggest other ways to go about looking at things. So I'm a big fan of qualitative research. Um, I, I like it. I think it's important. I think it comes to its own set of concerns. Oh, yeah, to be aware of a lot of different issues that could be involved like in the research world with different biases and things like that. And how you conducted, how you knew it, your relation to the context, your relation to the community, how the community might view you as a researcher, all that stuff and impact what you might normally think is just, oh, it's an interview. I got to talk with three. But there might be the same kind of shifting of answers that a survey might have just for different reasons. So you just want to make sure all that's on a level playing field. And yeah, I think anytime you talk to folks, I like it because it's so much more, right? There's so much more, especially on a focus group or an interview, where you're actually interacting with the person. You have that immediate follow-up. I like the idea of entering stories, entering ideas. That's great too. If you can find the pattern, find the, the analytical stuff there to kind of see, is it pointing to something else you can research, maybe use quantitative data later on to try to something that you're finding through the qualitative stuff, the mixed methods research. So yeah, I'm a big fan of, of qualitative stuff. I think, like I said, it comes with its own set of drawbacks, but not even drawbacks to a point. It's just, you just have to understand that those are possibilities and how that might influence your research. But I think one of the biggest concerns I would have immediately is when you go into an, a community where people are actively speaking is that sometimes that active 
voice is missing quiet voices somewhere. And you want to make sure that when you're doing like interviews and focus groups that you try to compass everything. Now, again, we would have different reasons for the research, but like in my world of research, like academic research, I would kind of reach out to everybody. I would assume, again, not an for Sandra, but when I was on, I was involved in local government, we tried our best to make sure to reach out to folks that didn't have access or people that couldn't make it to our focus groups. Maybe they had issues with transportation. They had issues just moving. They had anything that was going on. They didn't access the technology. Maybe they didn't know the thing was happening. You always tried to go that extra level, try to reach out to folks. Again, that's probably the main concern right now that gave her qualitative stuff. But in general, I think it's a really strong way to go. The blended approach is always great when it comes to that type of data gathering in local government because Adam made a great point. When we start send out a survey, we only people that are interested in filling out the survey or sharing showing up for a focus group are the only voices we're hitting on. So recently in Upper Gwinnett, we actually did a telephone survey. We hired like a phone call company, which was way more expensive than usually what local governments want to do. But we really, my board really wanted to get the pulse of the community, not just the people they knew, not just their neighbors and friends. They wanted to make sure that they got a statistically significant survey that replicated our demographics. And so we just spent a little more money and did it that way. And this is a place where I think that academia could hugely help local government. I, in my entire career, took two statistics classes at Villanova and that's it. That's all I know about the correct way to gather research. I'm not a researcher. And that is something that we struggle with is, is not getting the data because the engagement isn't there. So I think that academia has much more experience with research and they could really help local governments in that way. Yeah. This is no small area. Like what we're talking about right now, it, we're right at this edge, this communication engagement, number one issue. And I don't think we really know how to do it. And you're exactly right. People just don't yeah. want to answer the surveys anymore. They don't want to answer the door. And people don't even want to go to the door anymore no. to do the door to door. When in this community safety project, which if Villanova would like to participate in it, I hope to launch it if we can get the funds this year. But the way we've imagined it is that students, as part of their research course, would participate in and we would set up like a, we're thinking like a trailer in parking lot of a neighborhood grocery store where there'd be some coffee and drinks and the stories would be either entered into the portal because through the computer or they would get a piece of information which they could take home and put it into the computer from their home or they could just tell the story talking to a recorder which would get transcribed and then the other would be like in the library setting up like a station in the library and we're collecting stories about when you feel safe and then you feel unsafe, like what happened? What's the story that moved you from safe to unsafe? Or you felt unsafe and then you felt safe. What was it that moved you to that? And I think the topic of communication, this is, to me, a perfect area for academics and practitioners to pull together and the nonprofit sector as well. Having volunteers in all three areas kind of work on a project related to communication and engagement in the community. So I think we've talked a lot about the potential here. And I just want to circle back a little bit and touch on what might hold us back. I think it's important to understand context for each of the worlds and what it is. If you're approaching academia, there's there might be some things that you need to understand about their world, which might cause them to hold back a little bit. 
and vice versa. If you want to engage and do some relationship building with local governments, maybe there's some things that hold local governments back as well. And I think it's good to understand that. What would hold you back, Sandra, from a relationship with academia? Yeah, I I might be the wrong person to ask that question because I've had a really easy experience with it, but I'm going to try to just pull from my experience. So I, before I was in Upper Gwinnett, I was the manager of a small borough, Chalfant Borough, where we only had 3,000 residents and had a much more limited budget. And I would say that anything that would require us to pay for services sometimes might be something that's a challenge. And it's not always a challenge. Sometimes it's something that your board wants to invest in if they wanted to invest in research or citizen engagement or have a special seminar for residents. They might want to invest in it. But also sometimes we as local government officials need a little help that we might not have the budget to pay for. So that's the only major barrier I can see really off the bat because Lafayette, the Minor Center at Lafayette has a great internship program for local government. I had that great experience with DelVal and I've had a wonderful experience with Villanova. So I personally have not experienced those barriers, but um, I'm sure there are some, but Adam can tell us about it. Oh, well, I might be the wrong person too, because I'm very open to trying to meet people where they are. But I would say probably the potentially biggest thing might be the time commitment and the misunderstanding of what can be done. If you're approaching an academic individual, you might think they have the university at their fingertips to be able to like bring in all this research and stuff. And they don't generally. It's really that professor and their ability to do on a personal level what they can do. They might be able, if it's a big state school or something like that, or if there's already a connection, speaking to our earlier conversations, if there's already some kind of bridge, it might make it a little easier. But if it's the first out of the gate kind of conversation, which is awesome to have, it's another one of those reasons why it probably shouldn't be right when you have that big problem. Mm-hmm. Because you might not be able to get all the available resources as quickly enough to help serve the public. So I think just time and that misunderstanding of just like somebody will walk up to Sandra and say, you're the government. They're going to assume that you're, <laughs> you're the council, you're the, you're every department, you are everything at all times. I think you can run that risk for an academic to walk with Sandra and think that. We also run the risk of somebody walking up to us and thinking that, okay, the whole university is at your disposal and you can help us do grand research here. And we would probably love to, just like I'm sure Sandra would love to answer every single issue that comes her way, but there's just limitations. It's logistical, time, logistical, hierarchical kind of stuff. Yeah, and working within the organization. So that's probably the biggest barrier that I could imagine if someone, I'm trying to put myself in a position where I wouldn't be able to try to help. And I would think, what kind of question would it be? Again, I might be the wrong person and I would try to be very flexible to make it work. Yeah, That's so funny, Adam, because as soon as I stopped talking, time popped into my head also yeah, for a barrier yeah. for local government because we don't, yeah. we typically generally are operating without all the resources we need. So time right. would be another barrier for us as well. So you've identified a few things here, and I want to zero in on that. Imagine that you're getting an ideal invitation. And Sandra, it's from an academic. It's not Adam, because you would respond to that probably right away since you have met him. But just it could be from anyone. And that invitation is coming to you. Tell me about the ideal invitation. What is the invitation? How would it be delivered that you would be receptive and most likely to be responsive in a positive way, like, like just a cold, 
Like I don't know the person at all and they're going to. Don't know the person. Okay. I think an email for me is the best way because when someone calls, I always think they're trying to sell me something and it's a pet peeve of mine at work. I'm like, I already know what I need. I don't need someone to call and sell me something. So usually if someone does like an email introduction, and again, I go back to those relationships where if someone sent me an email and said, hey, Sandra, this is Adam. He does blah, blah, blah at Villanova. That would be great because there's that relational aspect with someone introducing you. And there's also that it's an email and I can dress this at my own pace, going back to the time issue. But again, if it's really, truly a cold call relationship, then it would just be an email and then I could review it. And I would say to put as much into that email as possible and then ask for a meeting time. That would be my perfect invitation, but I'm not sure. Putting as much into it so you understand the context of the request. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to the time thing, probably like just the timeliness. Is this something you need like right now? I've heard that in other yes. conversations that academic and local government have different timelines. <laughs> we do. Like they're, yeah, like they might not be available in the summer or whatever it may be when we're having a big issue. Although we try to keep them the summer's light because people say they're away on vacation and blah, blah, blah. But I think the other good thing about an email is you can push it to the side right then if I was busy with something else. But then when I think, oh, didn't someone tell me something about that? And then I can reference it again in the future. How about you, Adam? I know you're open, and but, but you don't know this person. And what's the best way to make an impression on you in terms of an invitation? It's a great question. That's a great question. And I think I'm mirroring Sandra's answer there a bit. I think email's probably the best, right? It's, it gives you the ability to give me the control to dive into it. So I think if you really want a relationship to start out, I, I think that's always the best way. You're giving the person that you are reaching out towards the, the impetus the, or the time to actually try. You try to show, okay, I understand this is kind of out of the blue. There's as much information as I can give you. Please let's follow up or just like that and put it in their, their court. I, that's the way I operate. I know some people might not like that, but I like that. Some Sandra likes that. I think that's just the greatest way for me. So in that actual email, as much information as possible, my big concern anytime I would get something like that, if I were to get something like that would be, am I basically being recruited to put out a fire that's like raging right now? Mm-hmm. And, and it's almost like an unpainable like thing. It's not possible. So that would probably be the first thing I would look at. What actually am I being requested to do? Is it like, hey, we need a whole new change plan. Okay, that's something we could talk about. Or, or we want to address this major issue for our whole development or our communication strategy. Fine, it's great. And we need it by Saturday. We have a meeting on Tuesday. Like, that's where it gets a little haywire. It's okay, that's not possible. And so you want to just make sure, at least from my point of view, that Whatever is being asked is one, realistic, and two, what is the context that I'm being asked to parachute into? So if you're writing to an academic, I would make sure, again, if it is something that's happening very dramatically and very urgent, it doesn't mean nobody's going to help you. I think you should really state that up front and say, listen, this is a big deal. Can you help us with this urgent issue? As opposed to pick a little bait and switch. Hey, can you come help us with this? And by the way, we need tomorrow. Like yeah. that, that, I think that is probably the biggest way to get many academics to, to not be involved with it, scare them. And this is what the real thing is, I'm fearful for, is that you're going to scare those academics from working from books in the future. 
And that's really a problem because those academics have that experience. Folks in the future have those issues and experience and combining them are great. And if the vibes and cookies that further apart, I think is not great for the people. That would yeah. be my, my, uh, yes. That image of parachuting in, this really sticks with me, Adam. <laughs> you don't want to be parachuting in anywhere, really. Right. Yeah. You're willing to do it though. It's- Parachutes exist, right? The parachutes exist, so they're the way to do it, but it's not big. I was just giggling because I don't know how old Adam is, but I think we answered based on our generation. And I think that the answer to that question might be different if you asked. I'm a, I don't think Adam's a Gen Xer. I don't know. I can't tell from just looking at you. I am a Gen Xer. I'm a Xenial technically. And so I love email and I love to be able to approach things at my own pace. A millennial or a Gen Z might answer that question differently. And I think definitely a boomer would as well. Yeah, timeliness is a huge generational difference. It's just how you respond to things. And the benefit of the doubt, I find that even anecdotally in my world, that's just you could get to deal with different generational folks, probably more so than mm-hmm. the average person. And, and I, I think it's timeliness to say, and then how that person perceives your response to the timeliness mm-hmm. and change the direction of a the conversation. They think it should be happening now and they don't give you the benefit of the doubt that way. That could stymie or just mess up that relationship right from the get-go. And, and then that, and that's, it's a really interesting point you brought up. Mm-hmm. The other thing I heard you say, Adam, which interested me was about the box. That getting an invitation that puts you in a box is not very inviting. No, you know? not at all. Yeah. Especially when you're trying to ask someone for their help. Like they don't have to get in the box with you. So if your question before, maybe I misunderstood, it was more along the line of how would you get me involved? There might be folks that want to get involved no matter what. They're just go. But my advice would be you don't want to put people in the box. The further you get away from what I would assume would be the more traditional route of trying to solve a problem. If that person you're asking to help you has no real tie to said problem, I think you are giving them a bunch of reasons to not get involved with said problem. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. You want to make that relationship in a way that says, hey, listen, I appreciate your help. We're open to your help. We have time to help. Or conversely, we need your help. We have no time to help. We have nowhere else to go. Please help us if you can. But at least you're being upfront and honest and that individual can make that decision based upon what they can or can't do for you moving forward. Yeah. I think having that compelling reason to engage is helpful. And I particularly, if I get an invitation and there's, they say, we think this is what we need to do or the direction we need to go, but we're not sure. We want to have a conversation about that, which is helpful. It's like, it's open to the possibilities of what could be, what could come next. It's not, this is what we want or else we don't want it. I want to wrap up here. And I think that this conversation is one that we need to have with each other across sectors. But I think that those who are interested in actually building relationships are maybe wondering, I've never thought about it. It's something that I maybe would like, but I'm not sure what to ask. I think this episode is going to be very helpful, but it's not as easy as it might seem to just go out and introduce yourself and and begin building that relationship. So what I hope people will, in listening to this episode, see is that both of you represent your sectors very well and that you are very generous. So I, I think that the relationship building is very 
real here in the conversation today. And I just appreciate so much that you're able to be present and, and give your sense of things from your perspective. And I have been richly rewarded through the conversation, and I hope that you have as well. And I hope that we can engage again, since you're both in Pennsylvania. And Sandra, I hope to see you maybe in May at APMM. Yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> Adam, did <laughs> you ever go to the ICMA or APMM conferences? Yeah, we've been stuck on the, the virtual loop last couple of years, so I haven't had a chance to really get back in the swing of things. But yeah, when I can, I do. Yeah. Okay. I hope they get a chance to interact with you again as well in that situation. So thank you both for coming on and being a part of this series. And we have one coming up with the Minor Center soon with Nicole and another one with Mandy Cantlin, who is just received her doctorate from Westchester. So she has both the local government and academic perspective. So those are a few of the other episodes that'll be part of this series. And the one we just did two days ago is a great conversation as well. So I hope others will check those episodes out. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. I love learning from Sandra. I always love learning from folks that are actually doing this stuff, right? I'm always in awe of the folks that, that are on the front lines dealing with the local residents and, and whatnot. So. Very much appreciate your efforts, Sandra and Nancy. I think these are phenomenal that to try to, these are one avenue to try to open up these discussions because now there's, it helps me understand again, regrounds me and things like that. So I appreciate the time very much. I appreciate both of you taking this time out. I have to say, I appreciate you both as well. And it's been a lovely conversation. And Adam, we wouldn't be able to do these things without our basis. Many of us have MPAs from Villanova, at least locally from Southeastern PA, and you guys taught us everything we know. So I appreciate that connection. And like I mentioned earlier when we were speaking, every time I've reached out to academia, they've answered the call. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I had to chime in too. Villanova really has stood out. In my experience, since I've lived in Pennsylvania, I've just heard nothing but good things about the program and those who are teaching in it and uh, working there. So it's yeah, great. it's an excellent Glad we have that here in the state. Yeah. A great, it's a great number of people. Our network is just phenomenal. Yeah. The graduates support the new incoming students. Faculty try to support everybody else that's going on in the whole thing. And it's just a really supportive area that I think is great. And, and I think the residents of Pennsylvania and that are more multimodal, we're seeing more graduates in different parts of the country. I think presidents. Wherever an MPA grad falls, benefits greatly. So now that that's one of those that's things true. that really inspired me. So hearing you Sandra talk, like I said, it really to hear that that angle story you told before, but that person calling you and calling you and all that, and then that really I mean that really is like public service. I mean, it, it, Thank in a nutshell, that's in a nutshell. It really is. It is, and it, it's a great result. Like I smiled so big when I got her message because I was like. You hung up on me before, but I guess I came through in the end. <laughs> yeah, it's that personal connection that wins the day sometimes. Yeah. That's great. But it was phenomenal. Thanks so much for both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye, though. Bye. Bye.